Well, Father, it's with anticipation that we open our Bibles, and that is that we would indeed have ears to hear and eyes to see the message from your word today, that it would impact our lives. Father, how easy it is for us to to mouth the words of commitment and love, and yet our hearts wander so easily away from you. Father, bring conviction. Give us the ability to focus and discipline ourselves unto godliness today as your Holy Spirit works in us, accomplishing your purposes and your ends in our lives, that we would live carefully the Christian life before you and in victory in a lost and dying world, that we would live with a confidence and a strength, letting our light shine before lost people, that they might see our good works and in turn glorify you, our Father in heaven. We commit our time to you. We commit our, our listening to you. May your Holy Spirit have a great freedom to work among us through the power and authority of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So will you take your Bibles and turn to Proverbs chapter 13, please. We're on our way back to Genesis again this week. And uh, what an important passage we're in this morning. Uh, Finally, 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 we have a baby in Sarah's arms this morning. But Proverbs chapter 13, beginning with verse 12, I want us to look at a verse there that sort of captures the spirit of the passage uh, that we'll be dealing with today. And I think you're going to find that you can relate to these feelings, to this sense. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12. Look what the writer here, Solomon, said. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Did you get that? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Sick. Some of you know exactly what that mean, don't, means, don't you? You know what it is to long for God to be at work in your life. You know what it is to desire something so much and to believe that it's part of God's plan for your life. And then it either crumbles or it falls apart or it never materializes. It never happens the way you thought it should happen. And your heart is sick. All kinds of ways that hope becomes deferred. But then it says, a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. See if you don't agree with me that that does not capture the testimony of Abraham and Sarah to this point in our story. And I now invite you to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. We have been waiting for this for 25 years. That's not to say we've been in Genesis for 25 years, but Abraham and Sarah have been waiting for this for 25 years. 25 years before this, God began a work drawing Abraham out of Ur, all to the end goal that he would give him this child, this son of promise, Isaac, through whom the world would be blessed and through whom Abraham would be the father of a descendant, a nation that would number more than the stars of the sky. Do you remember when God took Abraham outside of his tent at night and said, Abraham, count the stars. And he said, out of you, I will make a nation. And oh, they have longed for this day. Oh, they have desired for this moment. And do you know what it is like Abraham and Sarah, to have the heart become sick 
as hope is deferred, as you begin to doubt the promises of God, and you begin to wonder the time frame at which God is at work, and then you begin to manipulate and to plan and to plot how to help God accomplish His end. And you invite Hagar into your tent, and all of a sudden, everything's a mess, and now you and your wife fight. And you have now taken something that God has planned, and you have messed with it. Because you got tired of waiting on God, that's what's happened here. Thirteen years before this event is when Sarah had that bright idea that it would be like the culture around them. It would be her handmaid servant, Hagar, who would become another wife to Abram. And he would lie down with her and through her have a son. Well, we'll learn more about the end of that story next week in the last half of 21. But this morning for our text, we're in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. And finally, finally, through numerous detours, through the doubting of the darkness of the night, for the dead-end street of 25 years of waiting, wondering if it would really happen, here it is. Let's read our story, Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. And Sarah became pregnant and bore a son and to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. And when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And as Sarah sits in her tent... Can you imagine what the last nine months has meant to this couple? You'll recall it was just last week in this window of time before her pregnancy that Abraham had fallen into some of his old ways and he had lied about his relationship. He had taken a wandering trip, probably out of the will of God. They're back home, they're in their tent. And one day, I would assume it would be though divinely intervened, a divine intervention as God enables a woman who is beyond the childbearing years to conceive, I would expect, based upon the text and no indication anywhere in the scripture, that this is anything other than a normal physical human birth where a man and a woman, a husband and wife, have come together as God designed it so marvelously to work. And there is now a pregnancy. And for nine months, what's happened? Can you imagine how Sarah must feel? Granny is pregnant. There's a, there's a whole new way of looking at the world. For 25 years, that which seemed it would never happen is happening. And as she breaks out the maternity clothes and as she walks downtown and she sees people trying to size up what this elderly couple looks like, something about this doesn't seem right. But oh, it's right to Abraham and Sarah. And here they are, filled 
with the joy of the Lord, filled with the reality that God has been faithful to his word. As we break this passage down this morning, I would like to back away from it just a little bit, and I would like to make immediate application to our lives. And I think that we see in this wonderful moment in Abraham and Sarah's tent as she holds this baby, I think that there are some truths here that we need to latch a hold of. They are foundational truths. In fact, I'm, I would say that they are foundational truths to walking with God with a peace and a satisfaction. These truths, three of them that I want to share out of this text this morning, are foundational truths for Abraham and Sarah and for us today that if we will grab a hold of these truths, they will bring a peace and a satisfaction to our walk with God that you will not otherwise experience. In fact, I call them foundational because without them, you will experience a restlessness, you will be worried, you will be dissatisfied with your Christian walk, you will be dissatisfied with God's plan of blessing for your life, you will question and wonder if the word of God is true, and you will not have a confidence to walk with God and to live for God and to let him be in control of your life in the same way if you will hold on to these three foundational truths. They're also foundational because they are relatively simplistic. They seem like no-brainers to the average Christian. They are uh, maybe in the plumber's world the equivalent to the first day on the job where the fundamental foundational lesson that the plumber needs to learn is that water won't run uphill. Okay? If you're going to plumb the pipes, make sure you run the water the right direction. It's just foundational. It's just elementary. It's just right there. The first lesson that I think we see in this passage is this. It is so clear through the testimony of Abraham and Sarah. And we need to grab a hold of this this morning, this fundamental truth that we would have a satisfaction and a peace in our walk with the Lord. It is this. God always keeps his word. God is a promise-keeping God. Did you see it in the text? Chapter 21, verse 1, look what it says. Now, the Lord was gracious to Sarah. That's a great phrase just to think about, isn't it? That God is gracious and good. But notice the next phrase. God was gracious to Sarah, giving her that which she did not deserve, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Listen, as you read this story and as you take it in and as you relate to their emotion, and you recognize that there was 25 years of dry desert longing for God to work in them, longing for the fulfillment of his promise, questioning, wondering, and finally this day has come and the hope that has been deferred is now a longing fulfilled and the screaming Neon billboard sign to us is God has kept his promise and God will always keep his promises to his people. Listen, foundational to any success in my Christian walk is a confidence in the promises of God. Do you get that? Foundational to any success at any level in my Christian walk 
is a confidence in the promises of God. Have you ever noticed a Christian that you wished you were like? Have you ever seen a mature believer? Maybe they're older, maybe they're younger even, but you've thought, man, I would like to be like them, but I can never be like them. One of the things that I have observed in godly, satisfied, walking with Jesus Christians is that when you get to know them, fundamental and foundational to their walk with the Lord is this reality. They just believe the word of God. They don't doubt it. They don't question it. If God said it, they believe it, and it's all settled. And oh, do they avoid the problems because of that. And oh, do they have a joy in their relationship with God, watching him keep his promises. But oh, the restless ones who think that maybe God didn't mean what he said. Maybe there's really not a good answer here. Maybe not. But when they latch on and they believe, in fact, we know that this is Abraham's testimony, don't we? Will you turn to Hebrews 11? One more time, we've referenced it because there's detail given there. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. Will you notice it? Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. And notice what the writer of Hebrews says. First and second Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews. There you are. If you get to James, you've gone too far. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. Take a look. Look what it says. The writer of Hebrews says, It was by faith that Abraham, even though he was past age... Okay, that's why it took faith. There was no good human logical answer here. And Sarah herself was barren was enabled to become a father because, notice the next sentence, he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from one, this one man and he, as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Listen, we've spent a whole message or two talking about how it was the point in time where Abraham became a man of God and entered into the righteousness of God, looking ahead to the cross of Christ, was the moment that he really believed. Paul says in Romans 4, and Hebrews says that he never wavered in unbelief. Well, it seems like he did, but evidently deep inside, at the, at the deepest part of the of the fabric that wove together his life, he believed with all his heart that God was going to do this. And it says he believed because why? Because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Listen to me. If you're going to get off of square one in your Christian life, and you are going to allow God to work in you, and you're going to have a peace and a calm and a maturity about you, you have got to get to the foundational, principled point number one here today, that God always keeps His word. His promises are true. All over 8,000 of them in His book. Just as true as it was that God would give Abraham a son through Sarah, every other promise is true as well. Yes, there really is a way out of that temptation. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able, but will with the temptation allow a way to escape. 
That's a true promise. Act upon it. Live it. Believe it. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's on that promise, I stand today. And I believe it. And I'm not going to waver. And I'm going to move forward because of it. Why is it then that we who believe the word and we can entrust our souls to, to a few principal key verses like John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 and Romans 10.9 and 10 for all of eternity on a day-to-day basis struggle so with just living out the promises of his word? When he says that he will take care of you like he takes care of the sparrows, that's a promise, it's true. He who knows the number of hairs on your head that's changing daily, he knows every detail of your life and he knows and he's promised to meet your need. But we doubt, don't we? Why do we doubt? Why do we have those detours into Egypt? Why do we have those times where we manipulate and and massage the plan of God for my life? Have to throw in a few 50% truths like Abraham did last week. Manipulating the facts, trying to work ahead of God and getting himself all confused. I was thinking about why is it sometimes that we doubt? Why is it that we don't stand on the promises of God like we should sometimes? Why is it that we capitulate so much? I want to suggest three reasons why that we doubt the promises of God's word. Maybe you've experienced some of these. The first one is, I think when we encounter, number one, obvious impossibilities and unsolved mysteries. When we encounter obvious impossibilities and unsolved mysteries, we can sometimes doubt the promises of God's word. Here's what I'm thinking. Maybe you can relate a similar story or concept. This morning, my friend, pastor friend, Tim Webster, he's been here to speak at our sweetheart banquet and he and his wife, Laura, were here and they spoke, he spoke at our family weekend one time. Tim Webster's not in his pulpit this morning. Tim Webster is back in the back bedroom at his home and his wife, Laura, is hours away from entering the presence of the Lord in final stages with a brain tumor. It's been a brutal 18 months or so. It's highly impacted their whole church, their strong network of folks together. All right? Tim's a pastor. Tim loves the Lord. Tim's been praying, and the whole church has been praying for God to heal Laura. Tim's about my age. He was actually in ministry before he married Laura. She's about 10 years younger. They have three precious children. And you think to yourself, why would God take Laura Webster home? Why? Why? Does, why? That's an unsolved mystery, isn't it? There is no human good reason why that would happen. In the middle of those situations, as you pray and as you claim the promises of God and you say, okay, Lord, you said that whatever we ask of you, you'll give us. And I'm asking you to take the tumor out of my wife's skull. And it doesn't happen. 
And for some reason, God is going to heal her by bringing her into his presence. And you say, well, that's really no answer to prayer at all. And you have not been faithful to me. And you have, you have an unsolved mystery. You have an obvious impossibility. Humanly speaking, the doctors, the best doctors in the world at Johns Hopkins University said, okay, we've done everything we can and here's where we are. Now, I would love it in a few months to say, hey, Laura Webster's getting better. God can heal and God can do all kinds of things. But at this moment, humanly speaking, this morning, as we sit here, it would appear that it's just hours or days away before she will leave this life and enter the presence of her Lord. They've had a great attitude about it. They're not, in fact, going to have a viewing at her funeral. They're having a visitation now. They have invited everyone to come back to the back bedroom. And if she's asleep, she'll, you can talk to Tim. And if you're, she's awake, she'll talk to you. Because you're supposed to visit live people, Tim says. And once she's gone, we're not going to visit the body. And in his blog this past week, he put in the words to the old hymn, He giveth more grace as the burdens grow greater. He's dealing with it well. But can you see where you might be in a situation like that where nothing makes sense? And it seems like God is not answering your prayers. And it seems impossible for a brain tumor to turn around now. It's an obvious impossibility. It's an unsolved mystery. Why, why, why? And so I don't know if God hears me or not. I don't know if God really loves me at this step. If God really did, why would he let this happen? It is so ugly. It is so awful. And our children are so confused. You see what I mean? And so we doubt God. Second reason we can doubt God, I think, is meaningless tragedies and sinful atrocities. Meaningless tragedies and sinful atrocities. I think that there is more than one book written by an atheist who was once a God-fearing individual, but sometime during World War II in an internment camp, as they watched the brutal, horrendous abuse of their friends, of their family, of their neighbors... Somewhere along the line, standing there naked in the middle of the snow somewhere in Germany or Russia or somewhere and being beaten and being brutalized and watching dead bodies pile up like cordwood, they decided there's no God. His promises are not true. He is not with me here. He is not with me now. And it's, that's it. It's one thing to talk about it when you're dressed and in your right mind and sitting in church and talking about Abraham and Sarah waiting 25 years and bam, it happens. But get me in the middle of a meaningless tragedy. Get me in the middle of a sinful atrocity. Take my five-year-old daughter, abduct her, rape her, brutally murder her, and spread her out all over some wood somewhere. And then we find her. And you're to tell me that God loves me with an everlasting love and that God was loving and kind in all that he does. You Christians are crazy. So we doubt the promises of God, don't we? Third reason I think we can sometimes doubt God is the godless philosophies, godless philosophies and sacred mockeries. Here's what I have in mind here. One of our little Olympian boys or girls comes to church. They accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. The Bible's the Word of God. They're memorizing their verses. They're living for Jesus. They go to school and tell their friends. They lead their neighbor boy and girl to Christ. They work at our camp when they're teenagers. They go off to West Virginia University or Shepherd University or whatever university somewhere. And Joe 
sharp, intellectual, godless, pagan professor in biology 101 makes a mockery of them, convinces them that you're only one notch up from a Neanderthal if you believe the promises of this book. And they begin to doubt what is reality and what is true. See, I'm telling you that if you want to experience the peace and the grace of God, and you want to become a mature believer in Christ, you have got to get to a point where no matter what happens, the promises of this word are real, they are true, and by faith, like Abraham, you believe it, and it is the stabilizing factor of your life, and that's the difference. That's the difference... Talked to a young widow this week. Her 37-year-old husband passed away at a nearby church. Girl out of our youth group. Has an incredibly special needs baby left behind with her. Her husband just dropped dead, 37 years old. As I went over and talked to her at the dinner after the funeral Thursday morning, she had a calmness about her. There's a a steadiness to her as she's trusting God. And she looked at me and she said, you know what? We'll figure out what the new normal is. As Junior Laymaster laid in his bed with his neck broken, you know what his repeated phrase was? God has a plan. You're going to melt down? You're going to shake your fist at God? You're going to flip him off? You're going to say it's all utter nonsense? Or are you going to wait and see God's promises fulfilled in a way that only God knows? Fundamental principle number one, foundational truth to walking with God with peace and satisfaction is, number one, to know that God always keeps his word. Number two out of our passage back in Genesis 21 is this. God often makes us wait. God often makes us wait. Wait. Well, you can't help but see that principle here as well, right? The Lord was gracious to Sarah, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. His promises are true, number one. Principle number two, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Down to verse five. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And you have to say to yourself... And we know from other passages of Scripture, Abraham was 100, so Sarah was 90. She was 10 years younger than he. You have to say to yourself, now what in the world did God wait for? That makes absolutely no sense. Why wouldn't God at least have 25 years before when he made the promise, and 90 minus 25, is that 65 That when she was 65 years old, it makes a whole lot more sense that she would conceive at that point and have the child of promise. Why not? Because of foundational truth to walking with God with peace and satisfaction number two, God often makes us wait. Have you seen that in Scripture? Have you seen that testimony over and over that God is not in a hurry as He grows His people? In fact, you'll find the converse is true. That when people hurry and that when people rush into situations and that when people try to move on God, they muck it up and almost always end up in sin when you rush God. Satan's the one who wants you to rush and hurry. God says, hold your horses, take your time. I'm at work here and I'm in control. 
God is never in a hurry. Ask Mary and Martha, two of my favorite people in the Bible. Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Martha said when she ran out to meet our Lord Jesus. And then Mary comes over and says the same thing. Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Well, he had gotten the message four days before. Lord, the one you love is sick. Oh, okay, he says to his disciples, let's just hang out here. What is wrong with this guy? Lord, with a touch you can heal him. You love him. Lord, Mary and Martha are at his bedside. He is raging with fever. Their hearts are broken. They can see that he's dying. They can do nothing. And they're holding his hands. And he is chortling and gasping for breath. And Lord, you're just a day's walk away and you're just letting it happen, Lord. The grief that they had to go through. Lord, if you're going to bring him up, why don't you go heal him? Because his ways are not our ways. And when God makes us wait, he accomplishes things in our lives that he can never accomplish any other time. And what a great moment. And I think Mary and Martha would agree, not to speak for them, but that the grief and the the difficulty that they went through in the death of their brother and the overwhelming loss and the four days of mourning was worth every minute of it, every ounce of the burden of it to hear our Lord Jesus say, Lazarus, come forth! And for him to come out and God did something that he would not have been able to do if he had hurried. Ask the blind man in John chapter 9 sitting beside the road. Blind for all of his life, 30 or 40 years probably. Didn't just get some splinters in an industry accident a week or month or year before. No, God needed a blind man that the whole community knew was born blind, had grown up blind, was forever blind, would not be cured of his blindness, so that one day when our Lord Jesus walked down the road, he could look at that man and he could spit in the dirt, put some mud on his face, and make him see all for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that man sat there for 40 years waiting for that moment to happen. Listen. God is not in a hurry. God is never in a hurry on these kinds of things. And he is doing things that you and I never understand. And look at what has happened in the last 25 years in Abraham and Sarah's life. And I would say there is a richness. There is as Sarah holds that baby. Did you catch what it said? She threw her head back and laughed. And Isaac, the word Isaac, the name Isaac means he laughed. Or he laughs. And we all grin and laugh, just like Sarah said. From now on, when everybody hears about this, they're going to laugh. Granny had a baby. (laughs) Waiting seems to be one of God's great mechanisms for growing our faith. Did you get that? Let me read it again. Waiting seems to be one of the great mechanisms that God uses for growing our faith. And there is a richness and a joy to hope that is, to longings that are fulfilled when the hope has been deferred and it's God's timing and it all comes together. Sarah has a richness and a beauty in holding this baby that she never would have experienced 25 years before. But it was the tears and it was the trial and it was the struggle and it was the longing. And then God said, now's the time. And oh, there's a preciousness there, isn't there? Rarely, if ever, is the Christian life characterized by instant gratification or immediate reward. Let me say that again. Rarely, if ever, is the Christian life characterized by instant gratification or immediate reward. 
God rarely answers our prayers immediately. God rarely meets our need for financial rescue immediately. God rarely gives us victory over a sinful habit immediately. God always allows it to be ongoing in our life to drive us to Him, to test our faith, to prove what we really are. And you'll find, as I referenced before, that when you do leap into immediate gratification, and when you do hurry, you will almost always miss the will of God in sin. Almost always. Thirdly, not only does God always keep His word, you see that in this passage, as He had promised, she became pregnant. In their old age, God often makes us wait, but... Principle number three for walking with God with peace and satisfaction is to get to a place where I finally realize and live it out and believe it with all my heart that you, number three, cannot improve God's will. You can't improve God's will. Number one, God always keeps his word. Number two, God often makes us wait. Number three in this passage, we see that you can't improve God's will. What a moment for Abraham and Sarah. What a moment. 25 years in the waiting, 25 years of longing, and here they are. It really happened just like God said. Do you know that feeling? Do you know what it is to have your life and God's will intersect in just the way it's supposed to and have the satisfaction of knowing this is the right thing? Now's the time. This is right. What a peace. You cannot improve God's will. Listen, there are no upgrades to God's will for your life. He knows what you need and when you need it. And if you don't figure that out and let him be God and let him be in control of the timeline of your life, you will muck it up. Mark it down, it will happen. I've given this illustration so many times, I'm going to do it again because it fits perfectly right now. One of my former interns, his name was Scott Bradley. He's out of IBC. I don't care if he's all over the internet with his name. Scott did an internship with me when I was a youth pastor. He had graduated from Bible college and then he became a youth pastor, but he wasn't married. He took a church nearby in Martinsburg and every once in a while my phone would ring and he wouldn't say, Hey, man, what's going on? He wouldn't say, hi, Pastor Van. He would just, I would pick up the phone and I would know it was him and he would say, man, what is God doing? He moved to Illinois, took a church out there. Number of years go by and what it all was, was Scott wanted a wife. He was a single guy. He was in ministry. He was in youth ministry. He wanted to serve the Lord. He wanted a wife. He would, my phone would ring. My secretary would say, Scott Bradley's on the phone. I would pick up. He wouldn't even say hi. Man, what is God doing? And I would say, I have no idea. But I know this. You better wait on him or you're going to mess it up. Well, in Illinois, where he was, he met a beautiful girl out of their church there who was on the mission field. They've been here to minister and been on our platform. One of the top 10 regrets of my life is that I didn't figure out a way to call their hotel room on their wedding night about 2.30 in the morning for him to pick up the phone and for me to say, hey man, what is God doing? You want to undo the last 10 years? Think you'd be this happy if you'd have hurried on God? 
You cannot improve God's will. Young people, if you will just grab a hold of these realities, the promises of God are true. God often makes us wait, and I cannot improve his plan for my life. There it is in Abraham and Sarah exemplified, isn't it? God promised, they waited. It's a beautiful moment. It works. You want to be dissatisfied with your Christian walk? You want to be frustrated with God? Then start telling him his promises don't work. Get tired of waiting on him. It's easy to do, to get tired of waiting, isn't it? And I'm not talking about waiting three weeks. Americans are terrible waiters. We don't wait for anything. You might not wait one week or one month or one year, but when one year becomes three and three becomes 10 and 10 becomes 20 and 20 becomes 40, then you begin to say, I don't know. I think God forgot me. I'll tell you something. If you will let God be God and you'll come under and and stand on his promises, someday you will be breathing your last breath and you'll say, I have no regrets. I have waited on God. I've committed myself to his word and his ways, and I have not tried to figure him out at that level. His ways are not our ways. Listen, his promises are true. You can have confidence in his promises. Here's how it works. Begin to make notes to yourself. Maybe you're afraid. You struggle with fear. Fear of needles. Fear of the dark. Fear of being molested. Fear of bankruptcy. Fear of losing your job, all kinds of fears. Then you get Isaiah 41.10 and you write it down on a card. And it says, so do not fear for I am with you. And that's a promise. And then you stand on that promise and you don't waver. That's how it works. I don't have to be afraid because he promised and his promises are true. Maybe you're really frustrated with your life and direction and you don't know what to do. I don't know what to do either. But Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. Wait on Him. He's going to make you wait, but His promise is true. It'll happen. All right? So you have a fear, or you have a frustration, or maybe you're struggling to overcome the flesh. I referenced this verse earlier. You get 1 Corinthians ten thirteen, and you write it down. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation provide a way to escape. Is that true or is that not true? Well, it doesn't feel true. Well, Sarah didn't feel like she was going to get pregnant either. It's true. It's true until you believe it. If God said it, and it's a promise that fits you, not every promise in the Bible is for you, some is for Israel. Some are for specific people at a specific time. But when you have these general principles that apply to us today, grab a hold of it, live it. How about forgiveness? I referenced this one earlier too, I think. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Oh, but Pastor Van, I got this one part of my life and I don't think God can ever forgive me. No, he said in his word, I'll forgive you of all unrighteousness. You're going to redefine all to God? No, it's his word. It's his promise. You see, water doesn't run uphill. 
And these principles are true. These are foundational. These are fundamental. And these are the kinds of simple things that when you get a hold of them, you become a man or woman of faith and God begins to work in you. His promises are true. He often makes you wait. Let it happen. You cannot improve His will. Recognize there are no upgrades on God's will for your life. He's in control. How satisfying it is. How calming this is to just rest in His promises, right? To just stand in. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But like Job, I will say, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. Well, Father, we need strengthened in our faith, and it's not always an easy course. As we try to logic and reason our way through mysteries and atrocities and crazy philosophies, we can get all jumbled up. So help us to keep a clear and calm eye on your word, to recognize it doesn't change and that You are totally reliable and thank you for the testimony of Abraham and Sarah and how it was his testimony that having that confidence in the one who made the promise, he believed it. Help us to recognize, Lord, that your word is as good as your character and that you are the holy, righteous, sovereign God of the universe, unchanging in all your ways. Your word is absolutely reliable. May we grab a hold of these things and let them impact our lives, Lord. That we would not scurry about like the pagans around us who have no heavenly father. But that we would let you give us a calm confidence that you are in control. And that we would just quietly let you be God. Father, I'm confident that there are folks here today who struggle with deep-seated matters. Their lives are unraveling. Their nerves are shot. Their dreams are dashed. Their hearts are sick. Would you please renew and restore their confidence in your word, in your promises. Give them a patience to wait through the fruit of the Spirit. Give them a total commitment to living out your will only. Meet their needs, I pray. Help us to stand on your promises. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.